On this episode of 30 Rock, we're looking back on the epic 1991 album 10 by Pearl Jam. Hello, I'm Liam Renton and this is 30 Rock, the podcast that reckons all the best albums come from 30 years ago. So for Pearl Jam, it started in the late 80s. Stone Gossard and Jeff Ament were riding high in the Seattle music scene with their band Mother Lovebone receiving rave reviews, inking a major label deal and were one of the first Seattle bands to make both critics and labels sit up and pay attention to what was bubbling away in the Pacific Northwest. But their success was short-lived. These guys were going to be the next big thing. You ever heard the story? Only days before the highly anticipated release of Mother Love Bone's debut album Apple in 1990, their flamboyant frontman Andrew Wood died of a heroin overdose. Well, I'm Jeff and this is Stone. I think we were surprised because he'd been doing so well. I mean, even in the past year, he seemed a lot more solid than you know, the previous four or five that I'd known him, and uh, especially the last four months, he'd been, you know, he didn't drink, he was completely clean, he was working out, um, he seemed totally focused, he was writing a lot of new material. I mean, if you know any addicts, you know that, you know, just because they quit for three months doesn't mean shit, and, you know, it wasn't completely, you know, it wasn't completely out of the blue. I mean, I think he, he was someone who definitely had a certain tragic, tragic flaw to a certain degree. That's where his greatness came from, though. I mean, that's why he was the way he was. And this my kind of love. Wood's death really shook the tight-knit Seattle scene. So much so, Soundgarden's frontman vocalist Chris Cornell asked both Gossard and Amen to assist on a project in tribute to his former flatmate. The name came from a line in a song that was uh, a Mother Love Bone song that, uh, where the lyrics were written by Andy Wood. and. It was Jeff Ament from Pearl Jam's idea to use something that uh, was from Andy's lyrics, and that was one of the ideas that he came up with, and we chose that. Seems I've been living in the temple of the that project would take the name from Mother Love Bone's song, Man of Golden Words, and the album, Temple of the Dog, would plant the seeds of what would become Pearl Jam, with future bandmates Mike McCready and Eddie Vedder being recruited alongside Soundgarden's drummer Matt Cameron. Vedder actually ended up on the album almost by accident, but his duet with Chris Cornell on Hunger Strike has gone down in rock history as one of the greats, with Eddie himself saying it's still one of his favourite recordings to date. I don't mind stealing bread from the mouths of With Temple of the Dog being released in early 1991, the members ditched the original band name Mookie Blaylock, added drummer Dave Crewson, and got to work on what was to become 10 in Seattle's London Bridge Studios. Many of the songs on 10 were literally just instrumental jams or reworked Mother Love Bone songs for which Vedder composed new melodies and lyrics. Thirty years later, Ten still stands up as one of the greatest albums of all time, with the band wearing their 70s influences on their sleeves, showcasing their musical chops and giving Eddie Vedder the chance to emerge as one of the defining voices of the 90s. Ooh, 
Tracks like Even Flow, Why Go and Jeremy are classic examples of the band's engine room, with Pearl Jam's rhythm section of Ament, Gossard and Krusen playing with both power and groove. This musicality set them apart from some of the Seattle contemporaries, with a famous, although short-lived rivalry between the more punk and pop-focused Nirvana, who thought Pearl Jam were too commercial. We never had a fight, ever. I just have always hated their band. <laughs> but it's not like you're friends or anything. No, well, I mean, I, I consider him a person that I really like. I mean, we've had a few conversations on the phone. I, I really like him. I think he's a nice, really nice person. 10 has now sold over 13 million copies, earned the band a Grammy nomination for the single Jeremy and has become one of the defining records of 1991 and the grunge era. To chat more about Pearl Jam's 10, I'm joined by 30 Rocks resident rock historian Justin Rulon. What are your memories from this epic album? And it was epic. This is one of the biggest albums of all time. Oh, my goodness. One of the biggest debut albums of all time, would you mind? Like, uh, just a cracker of an album. And lead single, Alive, was my first introduction to the band. Um, in the early 90s, I was a really big fan of uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, the blues guitarist. Mm. And uh, when this album came out, I just thought Mike McCready's style was a bit reminiscent of um, Stevie Ray Vaughan's because they were both influenced by Hendrix. So just a great album. The one thing that always stood true was they were good at what they did. I mean, these guys were actually top-class musicians, weren't they? Yeah, and sort of um, very different to the the punk and the pop kind of stylings of bands like Nirvana, Mudhoney, those kind of bands that came out of Seattle. Pearl Jam were actually, you know, top shelf musos. Mm. You know, they were they were influenced by a different um, breed of musos. You know, they were influenced by uh, Led Zeppelin. Uh, they were influenced by, as I said, Hendrix, um, Kiss. Kiss was a big influence. Mm. Whereas, you know, bands like Nirvana were, although they were influenced by the Beatles, were heavily influenced by that late 70s, early 80s punk sound. It's funny to think that we may never have had Pearl Jam if the lead singer of Mother Love Bone hadn't unfortunately passed away. And, and and what a link there that his housemate just happened to be the lead singer of Soundgarden, who weren't massive at the time, but they were certainly well known. And to put together that super group, that band still talked about to this day as, as to how good that tribute band basically was. Yeah, I mean, Temple of the Dog, um, you know, rock super group for sure. You know, can you imagine Eddie Vedder and Chris Cornell teaming up on you know, Hunger Strike for oh, the first yeah. time. Can you imagine hearing that for the first time um, in the studio? What an album. And and it just, just kind of shows you how linked in all those Seattle bands are. But the other one that's interesting with the formation of Pearl Jam is Jack Irons, one of the drummers for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And he was the guy who handed the demo tape of instrumentals to Eddie Vedder, his friend from San Diego. And there you get Pearl Jam. Well, it's funny you say San Diego because Eddie has always maintained that he is not from Seattle. It's one of those things that he says over and over again. Everyone goes, Pearl Jam, Seattle band. Eddie's like, no, the rest of the guys are from Seattle. I'm from San Diego. He really wanted to make sure people knew that he wasn't actually from Seattle, that he was a ring-in. Yeah, and he was a, he was a surfer, which I think got him offside with people like Kurt Cobain. You know, they saw some of the guys from Pearl Jam as more like jocks, you know, where they were from the punk scene they saw these guys as jocks you know Jeff Ament heavily into basketball Eddie Vedder a surfer they didn't like that kind of um, that jock sort of appearance of some of the guys from Pearl Jam well let's talk about the basketball reference because when they originally put the band together and, and long time fans will know they'd called themselves Mookie Blaylock who was number 10 um, 
playing in the NBA and he almost sued them because they were going to go with that name and he said, no, 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 you don't, you're not using my name to form a band. And that's where the name 10 came from for the album because he was number that, 10. Yeah, number in his shirt. And yeah. Of course, famously, they, um, I think they, they named the band Pearl Jam after Eddie Vedder's grandma, Pearl. Well, it was after Pearl, but I love this one the most. She was married to a Native American and um, he had a special recipe for hallucinogenic jam, which Artie Pearl used to make. Um, so that's that's the <laughs> reference there. I mean, it's as simple as that, but Eddie said he tried it a number of times and um, can't remember much about it, just that it was pretty good stuff. Give, me, is, some, give me some of that jam. <laughs> which, <laughs> I'll take some. Which is how it happened. Let's talk about the album itself. Uh, you think of albums like that, and isn't it funny how bad our memory is? We both assume it's a number one album. Did not go to number one. No, as now, high as number two. Now, do you know who kept them out of number one? It's interesting. Em- it's embarrassing. It is embarrassing. It, it involved a mullet. This guy. And if you tell my heart, my achy, breaky heart, he might blow up and kill his plan. Billy Ray Cyrus had the number one album of the year and kept Pearl Jam from the top spot. I know. That's embarrassing. 30, 30 years ago, what was going on? Look, I think I may have owned that. Billy Ray Cyrus album because okay, it was such, so a pop, such a popular album at the time as it was. your fault. Yeah, one of the reasons, yes, absolutely. Um, kept them from number one. They never had a massive number one hit. But as I said, 13 million albums later, it, it was a real underground feel for the love of this band. Like you, you heard about it through your mates at school basically. Yeah, definitely. Um, you mentioned, you know, the Billy Ray Cyrus thing. I mean, it took them almost a year to get to, you know, number two on the charts. Mm. It was a bit of a slow burn. And don't forget um, in between that – you had the Singles uh, movie, which was directed by Cameron Crowe, featuring members of Pearl Jam. So I think that movie and that soundtrack kind of helped propel the band along, you know, push them further and further up the charts alongside some of those other bands that were on the, the single soundtrack, such as um, Soundgarden, Smashing Pumpkins, those kind of bands. It's a great um, soundtrack, even to this day. Let's talk about the feud with Nirvana. So, look, having a feud actually gets people a bit of credibility in the industry. What a band to have one with Nirvana. As uh, Kurt Cobain said, look, I actually like Eddie. Uh, I wonder if it was manufactured by someone, but there had to be some hate somewhere along the, along the way. I think it was a bit more of a beat-up, maybe, in the media than it really kind of was. I mean, Cobain was on the record as saying he didn't like them. Um, so there, there was probably a bit of bad blood. Um, but they patched things up. Um, famously, after Cobain died, Pearl Jam played, I think, in Atlanta from memory on the night that they found Cobain and dedicated a heap of songs to him, mm-hmm. almost dedicated the show to him. The song's from Kurt. As humans, we are tribal and we do like a good feud. So if I remember back to when the album came out in high school for me, you either liked Pearl Jam or Nirvana. You didn't like both. And I was definitely um, Team Pearl Jam. In fact, in our music room at school, this was a private school, mind you, so it was a little hoity-toity. The one poster on the wall was a Pearl Jam poster. I have a funny feeling the boys from Pearl Jam all went to private schools. It was kind of like the private school versus the the grunge kids that went to the rough school down the road with Nirvana. Well, they're definitely more commercial, weren't they, than Nirvana? Like, I think even even if you look at Mother Love Bone, you know, they actually were trying to, you know, they wanted success. Um, Andrew Woods, the, the, the lead singer of Mother Love Bone, who passed away, sadly, you know, would famously play shows to 30 people, but, you know, act like he was, you know, in a stadium. You know, he's that 
over-the-top, flamboyant frontman, sort of a la Freddie Mercury. Uh, let's talk about some of the influences for a second. If you're a fan of Linkin Park, you may not know that their lead singer, Chester Bennington, when he auditioned for Linkin Park, did a Pearl Jam cover to get into the band, as was the influence of the time. He just wanted to be Eddie Vedder, and you can hear it through all their songs as well. I mean, they've influenced so many major rock groups that have come up after them. I mean, even commercial bands like Hootie and the Blowfish, um, you listen to the, the vocal stylings of them and you can hear the Pearl Jam influence. It's almost like every um, rock and roll frontman for a while there in the 90s wanted to be Eddie and wanted to sound like him. Well, there was that classic takeoff Eddie on Saturday Night Live when Adam Sandler, starting out, used to do an Eddie Vedder impersonation on SNL uh, weekly. And he makes no bones about the fact that he was a massive Pearl Jam fan, as we all were. David Letterman famously, and I love this story, for months wanted to get Pearl Jam on the show but couldn't get them on. And Eddie tells this great story that David would talk through the TV, would send him personal messages, would talk to Paul, his piano player, and say, when are we getting Pearl Jam on? How long do we get Pearl Jam on? And one night Eddie said he was high as a kite watching TV and Letterman is talking to him saying, Eddie... Eddie. He'd been um, having that jam again, hadn't he? Absolutely. And Eddie said, I just wanted the TV to stop. So we agreed to go on the Letterman show. Um, They actually gave one of the final farewells to Letterman on his last show because of the support Letterman gave them in making them massive. I mean, not just in America, but they are worldwide known, this band. We talked about, you know, they wanted success. I think they wanted success. They were ambitious. But then they also kind of shied away from the spotlight as well. It wasn't the be-all and end-all. You know, famously, after 10, they ditched um, videos. You know, they would not do any promotional stuff a la Letterman for you know for the albums. Mm. Um, so although they kind of wanted that success, they also kind of shied away from it as well. Interesting point about the band, I think. It was weird. They really did they climb under a rock for a long time there. I could never understand why because they had such – maybe it was such the success they had. They were so big. And, of course, you lose any personal space when that sort of thing happens. Um, let's talk about the tracks on the album. Some of the big names, as we've said, Once, Even Flow, Alive, Jeremy, Black. I mean, there were hits – Half the album was a top 10 hit now in my mind. Oh, absolutely. And um, Oceans even charted in America without actually being officially released. Mm. Uh, released in Australia and Europe, I believe. But um, never released in America, but charted. But all of those songs on that album could have been singles. Like, it's just such a strong album from, you know, top to bottom. Now, let's see where it charted around the world. So here in Australia, number 14 is as high as it got. Number two in the USA, we know, behind Billy Ray Cyrus. It's only number one was in Canada. They went to the top. In Canada, the only place they took out the number one spot around the world. Good on you, Canadians. Do you know about the Pearl Jam Red Hot Chili Peppers connection? Yeah, so it's Jack Irons, the drummer. Yep, so once 10 came out, then they handed a cassette tape to Flea. And he listened to it in his car. And he listened to 30 seconds of Alive. And he said... Oh, they're coming on tour with us. Literally 30 seconds of a song sitting in someone's hot car and they basically said, would you come on tour with us? Now, here's the funny part. Pearl Jam were on tour of their own. They were touring 10 when they got a call from Red Hot Chili Peppers. They cancelled the remaining shows on their own tour to go on the road with the Chili Peppers and open for the Chili Peppers. Now, how's this for a lineup? Also opening, so Chili Peppers had three lead acts, were the Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana and Pearl Jam, all played before the Chili Peppers hit the stage. I mean, maybe that's where the feud comes from, right? They you know, travel maybe, together. You know, travelling together, 
um, you know, competitive. competitive. Who's going on first? Mm. Well, I think you'll find at the time Nirvana were actually bigger, and and they liked the fact that they had some bands that were on the charts. They were together, traveling for months. Um, don't forget. The bands back then had hits, but they weren't as known as loved as... Like, we talk about them today with all this back catalogue. They may only had one or two hits back then. They weren't as well known. They were liked, but didn't have the, you know, the the level of success they've got today. Yeah, and we can kind of look back on it now and, and we kind of forget about the seismic shift that kind of happened around 91 mm. because it was just such a huge shake-up of the music industry, right? Um, all of a sudden, you go from um, bands like... Soundgarden, who had been around for you know quite a few years by the time you know 1991 um, comes around, and then all of a sudden, boom, you know, they just explode. Um, Pearl Jam come from nowhere into this massive you know band in the space of a year. I, I kind of you know think that the the Beatles, Rolling Stones perceived feud as a bit like the Pearl Jam, um, Nirvana feud, except for the fact that you know Kurt passes away. And then they release no more songs. So Pearl Jam have a bigger back catalogue. Pearl Jam have more hits. But I guess in terms of infamy, who do you reckon is more famous, more well-known and more loved? It has to be Cobain. Like you, you see, you know, 15-year-olds wearing Nirvana T-shirts these days. But, I mean, maybe it is the fact that they've just kept going, you know. They've never actually broken up. They've never taken a break. They just keep putting out album after album. They keep touring. You know, when are they going to stop? Um, let's talk about their live gigs for a second. I've seen them live. You've seen them live before. Now, I saw the very first show on the Australian tour in 1995, and it was just amazing. Was that so, the show where the crowd ripped up the seats? It was. So <laughs> what happened? Uh, so here's the story. First, um, first hand story, mind you. <laughs> about three songs in, the crowd just went absolutely berserk um the show is in the brisbane entertainment center so if you can imagine a large sort of um a large sort of room with a lot of people down on the floor yeah, fifteen thousand sort of holds. it's tiered, a good, yeah. good size event you've got all those people down on the floor and then on the perimeter of the building you've got tiered seating everyone on the tiered seating decided they wanted to be on the floor as well they rushed the floor the security couldn't handle it and there was no room for what seats were there, so they just started passing them out over the top of their heads. And, of course, you know, Eddie gets on the mic after the song's finished and said, hey, look, just calm down, calm down. Let's just take it easy and take a break. We don't want anyone to get hurt. And the other great thing about that show was they played the show, like it was a two-hour show. It just went on for ages. Don't forget, this was the first time they'd played in Australia at all. Um, so they had the two albums of, under their belt by then? Yeah, they had so they uh, no, three three under their belt by then. So they, they were touring Vitalogy. Yeah, right. Um, so, and the great thing about this show was that Dave Grohl from Nirvana just happened to be in Australia on holiday, came out and played drums for the encore, um, which included renditions of Neil Young's Keep On Rockin' In The Free World, but also Split Ends' I See Red. Amazing. Now, I'm friends with one of the managers from that entertainment centre and, and she's told me a, a similar version but through the eyes of management and yeah. she said to me the single worst night of her career was that Pearl Jam concert. Really? Yep. She said with the chairs being passed back, the damage, couldn't control the crowd and she talks about it like it was a real negative experience. When I hear you say it, I'm like, geez, I wouldn't have minded being at that gig. It was a great gig. I mean, being there it was just like, yeah, and I couldn't get down onto the floor but my mate did, um, you know, brushed past 
security as he sort of jumped over the six foot drop down onto the floor. Um, yeah, it was just wild, like so much energy in that room. I saw them 11 years after you, 2006 in the same venue. And I, and I love that venue. That venue has been voted the best medium-sized venue in the world. So it's a really good – everyone gets a good seat. Mm. You know, the sound's always amazing in there. So I saw them in 2006. They had all the back catalogue. And the one thing I remember the most about the night, apart from them just nailing all the hits, like they just – they pleased the crowd. They played the big songs. You didn't miss out on any hits. They weren't very interactive with the crowd. Eddie's not a massive – talker uh, and he he'd certainly had given up the whole I'm going to climb you know speaker stacks and and jump into the crowd he's a little older by this stage but my lasting memory from the gig apart from just loving it was beside Eddie's microphone he had three bottles of red wine and he literally drank all three bottles while performing and I remember thinking I couldn't drink that much water in one sitting let alone three and he was he was fine he must have sweated half of it out didn't impact him at all my second memory was the length of the gig. It wasn't just your 90-minute play the 10 hits and get out. It was verging on a two-and-a-half, three-hour gig. Like, it was a... They played everything, every song from nearly every album. And I remember looking at my clock thinking, I should go home at some point here. Like, it was a very long gig. They just love playing their instruments, these guys. It's almost like, you know, if you think of the old rockers like Paul McCartney or, um, you know, the Rolling Stones, they'll Bruce still do those. Yeah, yeah. They'll, st- they'll still do those long shows. I mean, we've seen McCartney together. Yeah. Three-hour gig. And he was in his 70s. Yeah. And, and look, don't want to name drop, but we've seen The Beatles. It was one of the best gigs. One of the best. Probably one of the best we've ever, we'll ever see again. I yeah. remember walking away from that buzzing for, for months because they're in that that upper echelon. You know, you get to the – and I'd even put you know Pearl Jam in that one of the best of all time. They're so good at what they do. It's always a great experience. Yeah, and it's clear, you know, bands and artists like that, they're not just doing it for the money. Mm. You know, they actually really love playing. I do have a bit of a beef with McCartney. Uh, you and I saw him in December. Perfect opportunity to play Wonderful Christmas Time, and he didn't do his only Christmas release. And I thought, why wouldn't you play your Christmas hit at Christmas time? And I remember being filthy dirty about I mean, I enjoyed singing, you know, um, Hey Jude with 60,000 people, but I would have liked those 60,000 to have sung a bit of, no, just me. It's just you. <laughs> You lost me there. <laughs> and let's just talk about it as we wrap up in terms of iconic albums. There are some that are bigger, but not many. From 1991, and the whole reason of this show is to go back to the best albums of all time, which at this point is from 1991. It is just iconic, epic, holds up today, and one of my favourite albums of all time. Absolutely. And one of the one of the albums that, you know, really changed the game, didn't it? Um you know, and, and we talked about that musicianship, like just the groove of that rhythm section. Like we just had 10 on before we hit record. And just the groove, like you just sit there and just, you know, your head's going, your foot's going. It's just got a great feel. Um, and when you take um, musicians like Stone Gossard, um, Jeff Ament, and then you put a guitarist like Mike McCready on top and then you stick a vocalist like Eddie Vedder on top, you know, what a mix. Uh, look, we love wrapping up this show with one of the big hits. Um, do you want to duel it out? Which one do you want to hear from 10 before we say goodbye? Oh, something with a bit of groove, I reckon. Even Flow, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I do love Even Flow. Oh, we're agreeing yeah. for once. Well, I mean, I was, I mean I, my first choice was going to be Alive. Second choice was Jeremy, but if I, I would have taken Even Flow because it's still a great song. It's a so, hey, thanks for listening. Tell your friends about this podcast too, 30 Rock. We look at albums that turned 30 this year, so 1991 was when all the best albums came out as we go back and remember Pearl Jam's 10 on the 30 Rock podcast. We-